0: Good morning, many of you have children or have had little children in the past, and uh, I have uh, a toddler, um, and you know if you have had children, what an enormous task it is to keep your house orderly. I have one toddler, one toddler, let me tell you about the war zone that a two-year-old can make in the house. The house is a landscape scattered with blocks and books and dolls and bikes and a million little sharp objects that make walking around barefoot hazardous to your health. You know this, right? Uh, and then you have the days when company is coming over, and it becomes a mad, chaotic dash to make order out of the disorder in your house. Now, the toddlers, of course, must go in their cage um, God bless you, those who have multiple of those. Uh, but you're determined to clean things up. You're determined to clean things up to make order in the house because a disordered environment is unfit for hospitality. A disordered environment is unfit for hospitality. We all know that naturally. Now, here's the thing. This principle uh, applies not just to children and parents and uh, their guests. It actually applies to god and humanity and what i want to ask today is this this is the question that we're going to work with today how does god make an environment that is fit for his presence that is orderly that is fit for his presence and what does that mean for disciples of jesus to answer this question or to begin to understand it, we actually have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the story of Scripture, to the very first chapters of Genesis, where we meet the first human couple, and uh, they make what we might call the world's stupidest decision uh, in the history of humankind, and they disobey God, right? They do that one thing that God asked them not to do, and what happens? They bring about disorder. They bring disorder into the paradise of the garden where God's presence dwelt in all of its fullness and splendor. Now, the temptation that they fall into is to uh, become the source of wisdom and knowledge in themselves apart from God, the source of order, if you will, apart from God. One, uh, one Bible scholar puts it like this. He said they're trying to become satellite centers of divine wisdom apart from God. That's what, that's what they were doing. And it results in, this, this decision results in alienation and separation. Right? It results in alienation between God and humanity. It results in alienation between humans. They blame each other. They uh, realize that they are naked and they become ashamed. And it results in uh, alienation between humanity and creation and the earth. God tells Adam, you will now have to work by the sweat of your brow and your labor will be toilsome, right? So the disorder that is brought into the garden because of this decision actually is a loss of sacred space it's a loss of sacred space because of their decision the environment that they are in is no longer a fit dwelling place for a holy and pure god and they had full access to that before now this might sound all very otherworldly garden of eden and and serpents talking and all this but let me just give you like a modern day uh example of what this might look like in, in modern day A mom and dad uh, tell their teenage son that they're going away on vacation. He can have a couple friends over to stay with them for the week and, you know, have at it. You guys can have all the Doritos in the cupboard that you can find and you can drink all the soda to your heart's content and play video games and whatever it is teenagers do. Um, But the one thing that you can't do is party in the house. No drugs, no alcohol, right? Now... Mom and dad go away, and Jimmy and his friends, they're out on the back porch, and they're drinking and smoking and having great old time, right? And the neighbors see them, and they call the police, and the police come, and the kids get in trouble, and mom and dad find out when they get home. Now, what's the result of Jimmy's decision to be his own rulemaker? maker? Disorder. The house becomes a place of disorder. There's alienation between parents and son. There's a loss of trust. There's alienation between Jimmy and his friends because they start to blame each other for, well, he brought it over and he was the one who said we should do it, right? Um, so th- those decisions to be one's own rulemaker bring about disorder. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. And the tragic result, and this is really the the primary Primary consequence, tragic consequence of what we call the fall, as the Bible portrays it, is the loss of God's presence. They are expelled from that place where they had access to God's presence. Now, this fundament this this principle that God's presence was lost um, is fundamental in actually understanding the rest of the Bible. And it becomes a theme throughout all of Scripture, and that is what we're going to look at today. Now, Fast forward uh, in time to our reading in Exodus, um, where we hear the Ten Commandments, Now, um, or what the Bible calls the Ten Words. Now, when you think of the Ten Commandments, what do you think of? Maybe you think it's that thing that we say at the beginning of the service during Lent that makes the service a little bit longer than usual. <laughs> I think of uh, Charlton Heston standing uh, on the mountain. In the movie, yeah, yeah, Moses, Charlton Heston, and the, the fiery lightning bolts are hitting the stone tablets and carving out the commandments and all that, and you hear the thunderous voice of God. Um, but the Ten Commandments are often perceived as being um, primarily about personal morality, right? God says, don't do this, and do this, and your uh, behavior will be acceptable in his sight, right? Now, there are moral aspects to the Ten Commandments, to be sure. But there's much, much more to these words that are spoken from God. The focus is, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is uh, for the Israelites who have been called by God as his holy people. They have been given that status. He says to them, you shall be holy as I am holy. The purpose is to give them guidelines for how to maintain an orderly environment in which God's presence can dwell. See what's happening here? God is trying to reestablish another orderly environment that is fit for his presence, that is fit to be a dwelling place. And it's a theme that continues throughout scripture. All throughout the Bible, this is what God is trying to do. Establish sacred space where he can dwell among his people. You see, God is determined to reclaim the relationship with his children that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And he does it by seeking in various ways to establish an orderly environment where his presence can dwell. Now, it's getting a little theological, right? Get a little seminary, but just think about how this works throughout the Bible. First, it's the garden. That is the sacred space. And there's a loss there, right? And it's no longer the place where God is dwelling among humanity. And then God calls out a people for his own Israel and gives them laws and commandments to order their society to become a place where he can reestablish his presence and work out his purposes in the world. And then that presence becomes focused in the building of the tabernacle, right? Which is a tent that travels with the Israelites where God's presence powerfully dwells. And then, of course, there's a bit of an evolution and it becomes the temple. The temple is built right under begun under solomon and the temple becomes the dwelling place of god where god's people are to go to worship to encounter god and then to go out and be a light to the world but there's this ongoing struggle there's an ongoing struggle because god can't dwell in the midst of disorder and his people keep causing it his people keep causing it. There's much unfaithfulness, ongoing unfaithfulness, due to that first stupid decision made in the garden. And it's a wound that God's people throughout the ages have suffered from and that we still suffer from today. And the result is that people, because of the sin and disorder in their lives, uh, because they try to become the source of wisdom in themselves apart from God, they keep getting derailed from God's mission in the world. They keep getting derailed from their calling to be God's holy people. Now, how do you solve a problem like this? How do you solve, if you're God, how do you solve an ongoing problem like this, trying to reestablish your presence among a people who keep rejecting it? How does a holy God, Who is in whose whose holiness? By the way, is not it will you know it will incinerate you if you get too close to it. Not because it's bad, because it's so good, right? It's just the God's nature to be holy and pure, and He can't dwell in the midst of that which is impure and disordered. So, how does a holy God, whose intent on partnering with humans to carry out His purposes of saving the world, of redeeming it, of restoring it? How does he deal with this problem of disorder and sin that he can't abide? How does he deal with it? And that's where we get to the gospel. That's where we get to Jesus. Remember John's words at the beginning of his gospel? The word, the eternal word, the eternal son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is important. Because it has the same root word as the word for tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? A dwelling place of God's presence. Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, is the dwelling place now of the living God. Why? Because he lives a perfectly ordered life. He lives a sinless, ordered life. He's the perfect dwelling place of God because he's perfectly oriented toward god's purposes paul says this saint paul says this in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell the fullness of god was pleased to dwell now in our gospel today uh, we read that jesus goes into the temple we get a little bit of a different side of uh, jesus and he drives out the money changers who have turned it into a marketplace and he dumps their coin jars upside down it's a pretty dramatic scene isn't it uh you've heard of gentle jesus meek and mild yeah this is furious jesus vexed and wild yeah yeah, I came up with that It took it was a lot of work. Uh but um you know when I read this uh scene you know what I'm going on in my head is uh the theme song from that show cops, you know, bad boys, bad boys. Well, what you gonna do and he's coming in here to clean shop, right? Now, why the strong reaction? Why the strong reaction is he having a bad day? Did Jesus just walk wake up on the wrong side of the bed? No. His outrage, his he is indignant. And justifiably so, and here's why. The temple was a sacred space. It was supposed to be a sacred space and it had become disordered. It had become disordered because it was a place now of dead religion. It was supposed to be a locus of missionary activity. It was to be that place where God's people were fed and went out into the world. It was to be a light to the nations, but it had become an enclosed space that was maintained by people who had become dead in their spiritual lives. It was full of people who liked being outwardly religious. They liked going through the rituals, but they were using God's sacred space for selfish purposes. So Jesus is outraged. He doesn't mince his words. He says, you've turned my father's dwelling place into a self-serving industry. See what he's saying? You've turned the sacred space into a place of disorder. And God does not dwell here like you think he does. You see, here's the principle here. When we become maintainers of a religious establishment rather than participants in God's mission, we have become disordered sacred space. We have lost our first love. We have lost our purpose. Let me tell you a quick story, something that happened to me. Um, Just recently, a couple weeks ago, I was on the campus very early in the morning. I can't remember why I was here so early, but there was no one else here. And um, I went to uh, unlock the uh, bathrooms because there was going to be people on campus in a, in a little while. And I uh, went into the men's room and I immediately heard uh, the door of the other bathroom open and close. And my heart began to race. It was kind of freaky because it was so early in the morning. There was no one else here. And um, I walked out and I was looking around. As I looked over towards the parking lot, there was uh, a person, a, a woman with a backpack who was walking quickly towards the road. And my immediate response was, how did she get in there? What did she do? Pick the lock? How dare she do that? I went in the bathroom. There was nothing out of place. The lights were on. And I thought, you know, maybe I should call the police. Maybe I should call uh, Reverend Sarah. I think I forgot to mention this story to you. Uh, maybe I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. We're going to get the locks changed. And in that moment, I was caught by the Spirit of God. And I realized that I was thinking... Like a guardian of a religious establishment, not as a partner of the living God who cares for the homeless and the poor and desires that they would have a place to lay their head at night. Now, we said that Jesus, uh, when he rebukes the temple system, is actually telling them, and you probably caught this in the reading, um, that he is the temple. He is the new dwelling place of God. They say, what sign do you have of authority that you can come in here and do these things? And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they say, this temple's been being built for 46 years. That's pretty funny, and you're going to raise it up in three days. And then it says, uh, his disciples, uh, it says that he was talking about the temple of his body that would be raised from the dead. Now, we know the story. That temple is raised, but Jesus goes back to be with the Father. So what's the question now? Where will God dwell in the world? Where will God dwell in the world? Where will he establish his presence? I want to read something from uh, John chapter 20, very much later on in John's gospel. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And John tells us this. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. See, they're having a little holy huddle. They're worried about um, persecution because they were following the crucified Messiah. And Jesus appears among them um, and says, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And he says this, get ready guys. As the father has sent me, so I send you. And he does this. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Where will God's presence dwell? Where will God's presence dwell? You see, Jesus makes a a very, very uh, intimate connection between sending his disciples and the presence of God that he breathes into them. You see, having, being a dwelling place of the living God is always connected to being actively involved with his mission in the world to save people and to save the world. Jesus was saying to his disciples, you Now you are God's sacred space. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the place where God will work out his purposes in the world. I was uh, listening to a song in my car just this morning on the way um, into uh, church. I actually had to add this in um, because it was so fitting. And the lyrics went like this. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he sees. Yours are the feet with which he walks. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Amazing. But there's a big question. There's a big question that still remains that we have to wrestle with. What about sin? What about disorder? What about our imperfections? In our mistakes, doesn't that make us a disordered environment that is a hindrance to God dwelling there? Maybe you say, I'm not cleaned up enough. I'd like to be a dwelling place for God, but I'm not cleaned up enough. I'm just not there yet. Listen to some words from St. Paul. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another place he says, if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You see what he's saying? If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in him, if you stop making this first about what you can do and cling to his purity, cling to his perfection, then you can be confident that you are his dwelling place. And his purity will begin to influence you and you will live in a way that responds to that great sacrifice that he made for you. You see, for a Christian, it's not when I achieve such and such, um, when I get to such and such a place, then I can consider that God may want to use me, maybe. No, for a Christian, it's Jesus, the spotless lamb, gave himself as a pure sacrifice for me so that I too am spotless because I put my trust in him. The first one is about our ability It's trusting in ourself. The second is about Jesus and about trusting in him. You know, I think this is why so many people hold back from being bolder in their Christian life. I think this is why so many people hold back from being bold in their Christian life because they're still at some level trusting in their own abilities, in their own righteousness, rather than trusting in the finished work of Jesus. It's an ongoing struggle for all of us to be reminded of that work. Now, watch what happens, though. Watch what happens if you shift your focus from yourself to Jesus, from your own abilities to his perfection. You'll have more courage. You'll have more courage to share Christ with others. You'll trust that God is dwelling in you and will do amazing things, even when you're just bumbling around. Trust me, I know from experience, God can still work through a bumbling human being. Friends, do you see how much God desires to use you for his purposes? So much that he wouldn't even let your sin stand in the way. Now, I came up with a little thing so we can remember this. It goes like this. By God's grace, I'm sacred space. Can you say that with me? I know it's silly. By God's grace, I'm sacred space. Now, so you'll remember that. And it's true. Maybe this is the first time that this has really hit you. Maybe today you're having the realization, I've not been trusting in Jesus enough. I haven't been bold because I've been trusting in myself. I've been worrying that I'll mess up, that I can't do it. I've been serving, I haven't been serving the people God's been calling me to because I haven't actually been trusting Jesus to provide and make it all possible. I've been holding back in worship because I just don't know where I stand with God right now. Friends, today, I want to invite you to see yourself not as not as a burdened slave of God's commandments, not as a religious person who has a job to maintain your religious duty, but as a child of God, loved so dearly by him that he would shed his blood, his own blood, to make you perfect and complete so that you could become an active participant in what he is doing in the world so that you could become his dwelling place. Maybe, maybe you need to come up to this altar today for Holy Communion and remember that you're receiving the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for you and say, Jesus, I've been trusting too much in myself and not enough in you. And it's been keeping me from being risky, from being a courageous proclaimer of the good news to the world that you want to reach. Friends, this is the wonderful thing about Christianity. You aren't God's slave. You aren't in a position where you have to achieve your status with God. Jesus calls us friends and invites us into the work that he is about in the world to be his hands and feet. You see, you aren't people who have to earn your way into God's heart. Jesus has attained that for you. He has done something about the sin that kept us separated for him, from him so that we could become his children. This is what he's done. He's cleaned up our disorder on the cross. This is what he's done. He's cleaned up our disorder, our, our war zone, our disordered space, and is now reclaiming us as his sacred dwelling place. That should excite you when you wake up in the morning and make your coffee. You and I have become the sacred space that was once lost in the Garden of Eden. And God calls us to be bold, risky, courageous proclaimers of the good news. I want to close with some words from St. Paul to the Ephesians. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.